The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. A glimpse into the eternal presented to us uh, through God's Word. You see, Paul, as you remember in our lead up to this, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, a church that he didn't plant, he didn't start, a church that he's never even visited. He's writing to church people, many converted, but always knowing that even in a congregation of this size, even in a church like ours, there are many who come every week and on Sundays, but their hearts are not converted. They stand upon their own righteousness, their own morality before God. And so Paul is writing to this mix of individuals, backgrounds, racial mixes, all of this, and he's presenting the gospel. And he says in the first 17 verses of his, of his letter, he says, this gospel is awesome. This gospel is something for which I am not ashamed, for I believe that it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. That in it is the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus given to us on the basis of faith alone. Faith by faith. And he says, I want you to hear that. I want you to get the gospel of grace. I want it to excite you. I, I want it to, to land for you. And for you to walk away and go, that's it? It's what I've been waiting for. It's what I've been thinking about. It's what I've known I've needed. And now it's been presented to me. And my life is forever changed in that. But Paul was no dummy. He was a wonderful student even of humanity, not just of theology. He had an incredible anthropology as much as he had an incredible theology. And his anthropology, his study of man and humans and of mankind, knew this. That's why he began in verse 18 through 118 to 320 to say, I know that some of you just heard about the beauty of the gospel. I know that some of you uh, just heard those words and you were thinking in your mind, this is perfect for the person next to me. I got to get a copy of this sermon and send it to a friend of mine because they need to hear it. Because I don't. I mean, I'm fine. Uh, I, I'm good enough. But boy, there are some other folks who need to hear it. And he presented and started off with actually kind of low-hanging fruit. He started off in verse 18. Last week we talked about the wrath of God that was coming, that, that God is a just God and he is going uh, to, to make all things right in the end. There is a day of recompense. There is a day of reckoning uh, that is coming when all things will be made right. That there is going to be justice that will be prevailed uh, upon humanity. And that God is going to do that. And he said, and guess what? All of those who have a pagan mindset, all of those who are outside uh, of the church, all of those who live without any, con uh, any kind of thought of God, those who live in ways uh, that show forth God's wrath, even now, uh, those who live outside of God's bounds of what uh, marriage should look like, those who live uh, sexually immoralized, those, and then, and so everyone's like, oh yeah, and even in our day, you go, oh yeah, those people. And then he went, oh, wait a second, by the way, I'm going to give you a list of 21 other sins that should capture the rest of you. Disobedient to parents, gossips, malicious, that you're ruthless in your business practices, that you're all of these things. He said, these folks, they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
They need the grace of Jesus Christ because there is going to be a judge who is going to judge the actions that they have been doing in the world and around the culture, the things that everybody would know are wrong, but yet they have turned and have somehow said are right. So they're going to be judged. And I imagine if it was a non-Presbyterian congregation, an amen rose from the congregation (laughs) about that time. And folks went, amen, God's going to judge those people out there. Those immoral people and bigoted, racist, non-caring people who smoke and drink and dance and dip and do. Yes, he's going to get them. That's awesome. And then Paul begins the next paragraph. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. You who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He goes, okay, I've dealt with the pagan uh, world out there. I've dealt with those who live uh, this obvious immoral life. Uh, who, who, when you think of evil, when you think of immorality, when you think of licentiousness, when you think uh, of, a, of a world that is without bounds, a world that is truly driven by human, humanism, and man at the very center of it, He says, those will come under the condemnation of God, but there is hope for them in Christ, and that gospel is offered freely to them, and they will come to faith through Christ Jesus. And he said, now, I need to talk to you good folks. I need to talk to you wonderfully southern church-going folk. I need to talk to you religious people. I need to talk to you folks who are highly ethical and moral. You hold yourselves up with great virtue and standing. That you can stand and you said amen to those words that I just said. And you judge those folks. Be very careful, he said. Because in your judgment, you even bring judgment on yourself. Because within you, the church, is the height of hypocrisy. Because you judge these things that you privately do them yourself. You condemn them publicly. I've always been worried when you hear someone preaching, both from a pulpit or from a coffee house or in the car or wherever they're preaching. It's not a preacher, just someone preaching. The sin that they condemn so vehemently so often is the very sin that they're struggling with most. The the ability to to condemn quickly all of those who are in sexual immorality, all of those who would be out there doing adultery, now are wondering, is my name on the Ashley Madison list? Will it be exposed? Because privately in my life, I've been over here doing this while publicly saying all of these other things. So Paul turns his gaze And he goes, now, I've tried to comfort those who are discomforted. I've tried to let those know uh, that ways they see their world blowing up, they see the smoke, and they know where the fire is, and they're wondering, is there any hope, or are we just going to be judged by God? I've presented to them the hope of Jesus Christ, that he came to take them, uh, take upon himself their sins so they could come in. Now I'm going to turn my gaze on those who are very comfortable, and I'm going to discomfort them. I'm going to disturb them. In an old southern expression, Paul moved from preaching to meddling. 
And he went to start meddling into lives. You see, what Paul understood was this. Unless you see your need of the gospel, it makes no sense to you. Some of you have been in church since you were carried in. You're on the cradle roll. You, you went through royal ambassadors on Wednesday nights. And you won the sword drills. You, you went into communicants class and you were catechized to know all of the answers to the catechism questions. You've gone and been raised uh, in the church family. And you've then graduated from church. And you even went to church while you were in college. That was a big deal. You associated with Christians on a college campus. And then you graduated and you married a good Christian uh, man or woman. And now you've got great little Christian kids and you're back in church and you've been in church. And some of you are now watching your children and your great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And you sit and you go, I'm just fine. I've been in church my whole life. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, and you stand before the judgment seat of God. And he says, why should I let you in to my heaven? Why should I allow you to come in to eternal rest within my presence? Your response is going to sound something like this. Well, I was on the cradle roll. And I went to youth group. And I was in Royal Ambassadors. And... Um, I didn't date until I was 18 and even courted. My parents were court kind of people. And I never swore and I haven't uh, drank and I've never smoked. And um, I'm a good person. And um, I believe in Jesus. And I mean, I've been baptized at least three times. Uh, I've had Jesus bumps all the time. I mean, when I hear a good song, Jesus bumps just come on me. So I know that's the spirit moving in me uh, in there. And um, I've committed my life to Christ and... Uh, I'm, I'm a good person. I haven't cheated on my wife. I, I've tried to live a good life. You see what you're saying? You're saying that you believe in justice and a judgment, but it's just different for you. That somehow yours is going to be judged on a curve and everybody else's is going to be judged absolutely. And Paul is saying to you, I beg you, look at your own heart, church. Church people, look at your own heart. Lisa and I have had the privilege and the challenge of, of being in a lot of different churches. I'm a preacher's kid. I've grown up. <laughs> I was on the cradle roll, and then I was in communicants class. I could give the litany uh, of that. And what we've learned over the years is we really like people a lot. We like non-believers a lot. They're fun to be with. We love the challenge of their worldview and of engaging it. We like folks who have been broken under their sin and restored by the beauty of God's grace. I won't speak for Lisa. I'll only speak for me. I don't want her to get in trouble. But the people who I don't enjoy being around are church folks. They're difficult to be around. The problems are the wrong problems. The questions are the wrong questions. The issues are the wrong issues. Uh, it's always about those folks out there and what do we need to do and, and how do we need to make our stuff better and keep our living room clean uh, and make sure that the things are going right and we've got to do all of this and we're upset about this, that, and the other and all of these things and what do you mean you're hanging out with those people? You're not spending enough time with me and my needs and what do you mean you... Oh, what? Oh, 
Church people, are, they're just not a lot of fun. No offense. Well, actually, offense. <laughs> and what I mean by church people are individuals who come to church and their righteousness is their righteousness. Their hope of salvation is upon themselves. And Paul's talking to that group today. And what he wants that group to hear and to understand is this. Folks, the plane is going down. And there is a parachute that's available. But that parachute is not your good works and your righteousness. It is not how well you know your theology. It is not how good your quiet time is. It is not your discipline of faith. The parachute is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself given to you. Now here's the deal with that illustration. Unless you believe the plane is going down, you won't hold on tightly to the parachute, will you? If we're all on a plane uh, heading from Hilton Head down to Miami and the stewardess comes to you and says, uh, here's a uh, parachute for you. You might want to hold on to it. You look around and you go, perfect day, no turbulence, everything's fine, no one else is holding on to a parachute. Why isn't anybody else holding on to a parachute? I look stupid holding on to a parachute. It doesn't match. It doesn't go with my outfit. It's cramping me. I'm in the middle seat on the three-seat uh, aisle. I got a guy with 55-inch shoulders next to me, and, and he's all over me. And I got a crying baby over here. I look, this isn't going to work for me. And the person looks at you and goes, you look silly with that parachute. Why are you holding a parachute? I don't know. She told me to hold a parachute. My dad told me I needed to go to church. My mom told me I had to date a Christian girl. I don't know why. I don't know. I just, I'm holding on to the parachute. Well, that's pretty silly. If you were more enlightened, if you, if you understood better, you'd understand you don't really need a parachute. The plane's not going down. You're going to let go of the parachute, right? Anybody would. But if the stewardess came to you and said, hey, we're out of fuel. pilot's dead and I don't know how to fly the plane but I've got a parachute for you and we are going down soon I don't know when but I know it's somewhere between now and Miami and I don't know if it's going to be over water or over land but this plane is going down here's a parachute how would you view the parachute would you view it differently absolutely, when the big dude next to you goes, hey, what's up with the parachute? I don't know, but I'm holding on to it. It doesn't look good on you. No, it doesn't. It makes you stand out in a crowd. Absolutely it does. I realize that. You know, you're not going to be able to hang out with a lot of people because people don't like folks with parachutes. I don't care. I'm holding on to this parachute. Folks, unless you understand that there is a need for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is your only hope of salvation in the world today. You will hold it loosely. You will set it aside when it becomes inconvenient. Uh, you will rationalize it away when it gets in the way uh, of everybody else on the plane who thinks uh, that it's free cocktail hour. But if you understand that this world and this culture and everything about it is going down, and it's going to have an end. And the only ones who are going to make it through that fiery crash are going to be the ones who are fully protected 
and filled and covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you will hold on to him like he is your very life. And what you will do to the man next to you who is annoying, you will tell him, sir, let me tell you about the hope that can come by holding on to a parachute. And I will find out how to get you a parachute. I will give you this. I will engage your life because I know where this plane is going. And you will say to the person who says, but I'm good enough. Dad Gummin, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a lot better than those people. You'll say, it won't stand. Stand on Christ alone, on him. That's what Paul's doing. That's Paul's message here in this part of his letter to the Romans. And you know what I have come to be convinced of? The church that Paul was writing to looks an awful lot like this church. It looks like every church, ours included. We don't get a pass, by the way. This isn't for another church down the road. This isn't for another denomination. Uh, This isn't for somebody else. This is for us. And I'm simply going to pull four things straight from the text that we're going to talk about a little bit. And remember who he's talking to are us good church folk who think everything's okay, that we're good enough, and that we really haven't fully staked our claim on Christ. We don't see the need of that. And at some even incredibly arrogant, deep, dark place, God's kind of privileged to have me a part of his group. Look at what I bring to the table with how good I am. Here's what Paul first says. We have no excuse. He says, folks, there's no excuse to, get, to be made. Uh, verses 1 to 3. He just says it. Therefore, you have no excuse. I don't know about you, uh, but I'm really good at excuse making. My heart uh, is sort of bent towards making excuses. I can create them faster than can be. And what I'm finding about parenthood is that it's generational. And what I'm finding about life with other human beings in relationship, oh my goodness, it's just part of the human condition. That we are really good at excuses. Um, Sir, do you know how fast you were going? Well, actually, I don't. The speedometer must have stopped. And, uh, or it's, re- it's calibrated incorrectly. So it said I was doing the speed limit. So how fast was I going, sir, on that? It's an excuse. Um, why didn't you turn in your paper? Oh, well, I would have, but... And you fill in the blank. Well, why didn't you do this? And you come so quickly with an excuse. What Paul is saying here is we are without excuse. That you may not be guilty of some of those more heinous sins listed in the last section. But we are equally guilty of the underlying sins that lead to them. Because at the end of the day, what leads someone to the more heinous sins of just disregarding God altogether is the very subtle disregard for God at a seed level. That we disregard him. That we don't really care. We don't hold him in high esteem. That we minimize him. That we diminish him at some level. And what Paul is saying, he says, you don't have an excuse. That, that you have at the very root of your lives the very same kind of sinful heart. It may not act out in those ways. But it is still a similar heart. And you know what? God's wrath... And his judgment will be displayed 
against the little white lie as much as he does against the heinous act of murder or sexual immorality. Christ died as much to take upon the wrath that was intended for the person who was unforgiving, for the person who was not generous in their life. As this wonderful book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins talks about. By the way, you should, unless you want to be upset, don't read that book. If you want a nice healthy book, don't, I mean, but this is a great book because it's going to let you know, oh my goodness, I've taken a bunch of these sins and put them in the respectable category. And what I do is I like to hang out with other people who put them in those same categories. Because then what we can do is stand upon our platform with our agreed upon uh, good and healthy sins of gossip, of malice, uh, of judgment, of those kind of things. And we can judge all these other people on their sins. But it feels good to be with these folks. Paul says, you don't have an excuse that you practice hypocrisy by outwardly condemning the social and moral ills of our nation while inwardly practicing contempt and pride and self-righteousness. You believe that the sins will be judged and there is a judgment coming. You believe in justice. You simply don't believe that it applies to you in the same manner that it applies to everybody else. You're looking for the curve. Everybody else, it gets absolute. Paul's saying you don't have an excuse. That's the first thing that you need to understand. It's really simple, straightforward. So folks, what we need to understand, no excuse. We don't get to make excuses at the end of the day. We don't get to claim that our fathers and mothers didn't hug us enough. We don't get to claim uh, that we were abused. We don't get to claim uh, that we went to this kind of church or that kind of church. We don't get to have any kind of excuse. Paul says all of us are without excuse. He says the next thing we need to know is good church people who are really wrestling with our, mor- our morality. And, and we need to understand that there's hope for the moralist. There's hope for the church person. Is this... He said, you need to be careful because what happens within the life of this individual is that this person shows contempt for God's mercy. Verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, for many in the church and for many of us, we're going to get around to it. My dad used to have this silly little piece of wood. It was about that big around. And it just had four letters written on it. T-U-I-T. And I said, Dad, I'm going to get around to it. Flick. And he would throw me the round to it. And he was like, there you got it. Why are you waiting? What's the best day, by the way, uh, for you to start a diet? What's the best day to start a diet? Tomorrow. Monday. Uh, I like the Monday thing, except on Sunday. So I would never make the conviction on Sunday uh, to start a diet. Now, Tuesday's a great day uh, to have the conviction to start a diet. Because what you're going to do is then you're going to go, well, I'm going to start it on Monday, so therefore what I'm going to do in the meantime, I'm going for burgers, I'm going for fries, we're tossing in some onion rings, I haven't had a hand-spun milkshake from Chick-fil-A in a while, Uh, I'm going to have one of those, Uh, I'm going to have a big steak, Uh, I'm going to hit the candy bar, I'm going to do all of this stuff, because on Monday, then I'm going to stop all this stuff. Paul says we treat God very much the same way. We know there's a judgment coming. We know he hadn't come yet. So what we do is we presume upon his grace and his mercy and his forbearance. We say that must allow me time to just go do whatever the heck I want to do. And I'm going to have as much fun as I can have right now and I'll repent later. I'll deal with God at some later point 
For some of you, you are living in that moment right now. You have determined that you're not going to deal with God now. You'll deal with Him later. You are presuming upon His forbearance. Any of you who have been gracious to somebody else, any of you who have been merciful to somebody else, any of you who have been generous to somebody else, do you like it when people presume upon you? They presume upon your grace. They presume upon your generosity and kindness. They presume upon that. I find it something that parents really, really can't stand. My children. Oh, how I love them. But they are consumers. They consume my generosity and my grace. And they just assume that it will last forever. And you know what? We haven't grown up from that. We think that way about God. But what Paul is trying to say here, and what Paul is saying here, and the Lord is saying here, is this, folks, do not show contempt uh, for God's mercy, but recognize the purpose of God's withholding his hand is so that we would run to him in repentance. That we would do it today. Uh, that we would turn from whatever it is that we are standing upon. As one writer put it, he said, I take all of my righteous acts and all of my unrighteous acts, and I throw them into a heap, and I set fire to them and run You see, what we have to repent of, and for the Christian, what the Christian has to repent of, is not just our horrible, sinful actions over here. We should also be repenting of our damnable good works. Does that make sense to any of you? Some of you go, what do you mean repent of my good works? They're good works. Yes, but you're basing your righteousness on them. Therefore, they're damnable. Because on the day when you stand before God and you say, look at these, they will crumble underfoot. And they will lead to an abyss from which there is no salvation. And so what Paul is saying is it leads to repentance both of your righteousness and your unrighteousness. If that doesn't make sense to you, come find me later. Let's talk about it. That is so important for the Christian life. Of even asking the question, why did I just do that good thing? What was my motive underlying it? Got to repent that I did something that seemed to be good, but at the end of the day, It was generated out of a heart that was all about me. We show contempt for God's mercy. What we need to know, though, about this as good church folks is that God will judge rightly at the end of the day, and he will judge by works. Did you catch that? He will render to each according to his works. Doesn't that seem contrary to what Paul said elsewhere? Hadn't Paul said something other like, I don't know, By grace you have been saved through faith alone, not by works that no one should boast. That it's not by your works that you are saved, but it is by the righteousness of Christ. How is it that he's saying here that you're going to be judged by your works? What he's meaning in that is is this way. That we are justified by Jesus Christ and his righteousness through grace and faith. But the judgment and the condemnation of God will be given out based upon works. And so what it looks like is this, and I've got to go pretty quickly on this. It's going to look something like this. At the end of the day, when you stand before God and you believe that there's a judgment, He's going to judge you based on your works. He's going to judge you based on what you did, who you were, what is it about you? And you're going to stand there and you are either going to go, this is who I am and this is how good I am. And you're going to hand your works to Him and hope hope against hope that He judges on a curve. Or you're going to stand and you're going to go, I plead only Christ and his work on my behalf. That I look to him and him alone. That my works 
are like filthy rags. My works are offensive even to the nose of God himself. And therefore, I cast myself fully and unequivocally upon Christ himself and his works to get me in to heaven. Folks, it's not a 90-10 split. It's not a 99-1 split. It's not a 50-50 split. Entrance into heaven is 100% upon the righteousness of Christ and his perfections given to us. But if you want to stand before God, he says you will have to give account for your works. I've wrestled with this one all week. It has made me shudder and weep and pray. I hope that no one in the hearing of this message would walk away and believe that you have enough to stand before God. Y'all look really nice today. You did good. Cleaned up well. I know many of you. You're good folks. You're wonderful people. You're incredibly generous. You have loved me and my family like we have never been loved before. We are watching God's generosity poured out even within uh, the buildings and the campus of this environment. We know that we are having an impact around the world through folks like you, that you love your, your spouses, you love your families well. But I want you to hear this. You are not good enough to stand in the judgment. You're not I says, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand and be willing to humble yourself. The ego and the pride of the individual is what is going to keep them from falling upon Christ because the gospel assaults your ego. And it says, you have to run to Christ. So God will judge rightly in the end. And the final thing that he says is this. He shows no partiality. Verse 11. See, I wasn't really creative in all this, was I? Verse 11, what does it say? God shows no partiality. So what does that mean? What it means is this. He doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. He doesn't care if you're smart uh, or uh, dumb. He doesn't care if you're pretty or ugly. He doesn't care if you're wealthy or poor. He doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. He doesn't care uh, what your race is. He doesn't care anything about any of those human standards or conditions. What he cares about. And what you need to hear today is he cares about this and this only. There are two kinds of people in the world and only two. And that is incredibly uh, not politically correct today. But here are the two types of people in the world. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone and those who have not. And what we know is this, that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone will stand in the day of judgment. Isaiah chapter 12. That they will stand in the day of judgment. But those who have placed their faith in themselves, Christ says, leave. I never knew you. It was always about you and never about me. You used me as a means to an end for your reputation, for your conscience, for your life. But you never loved me. Max Licato put it this way in ending. Oh, how sad on that day when the trumpet sounds that many will come to Christ tooting their own horns. On the day when the trumpet sounds and we stand and we need to throw ourselves upon Christ and his resume, we read our own. 
Didn't I go to prisons? Didn't I go to orphanages? Didn't I tithe? Didn't I do? So folks, will you cling tightly to a parachute that's being offered to you today? Will it be the thing that gives you life and hope? And will it be something that you are so willing to share that message with a world around who doesn't know the plane's going down? How tragic. And we know it is. And so we should go tell others this good news of the gospel for the rank pagan and for the pretty good-looking righteous churchgoer. It's the same gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us enough to challenge us and to shake us from our own slumber. Thank you that you won't allow us to rest in our laurels. That you won't allow us to, to say that we've been good enough and that we'll just sort of cruise into heaven. But that there is a day coming and we don't know when that day is. But we will have to give account for our life. And I pray that all those who are hearing this today, the account for their life would be Christ's account. And that they would plead Him and His righteousness alone. Father, for some who are here today and are shaken, Father, would You reveal Yourself to them in a powerful way and turn their hearts from self to You. And would they be forever changed? And would the tenor of the song of this church always be that of the glorious grace of Jesus Christ who alone can rescue that we lift up our eyes to the giver of life our king and our God our righteousness our judge our Christ to him be the glory amen